Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This is God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit now to open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see Jesus, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning through, through this, your word. We pray that you would stir in our hearts more affection, trust, and love for Jesus Christ, the King who has come and the King who will return again. Do that, we pray, by your grace, for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. In our passage this morning, the angel Gabriel barges into Mary's living room or her kitchen or wherever she is and interrupts her day, interrupts the rest of her life with the most amazing news imaginable. He has good news to announce, news that will change her world forever and news that will change this world forever. In one breath, Gabriel announces the two greatest and most miraculous mysteries that are at the heart of the Christian faith, the incarnation and the virgin birth, that God would become a man and that the God-man would be born from a virgin. In one breath, these two great miraculous mysteries at the heart of Christianity, Gabriel announces to Mary as he burst onto the scene here in Luke chapter 1. But I want you to notice something. Before Gabriel gets to the real content of his message, before he gives Mary the news that he's been commissioned by God to deliver, he does something extremely important. He wants Mary to hear, first of all, how he's about to say what he's about to say, okay? So before he gets to what he's about to announce, he wants to tell Mary how to hear and how to understand what he's about to say. And he says this in verses 28 and then verse 30. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
These words from Gabriel are so much more than just nice pleasantries that you would expect to hear from an angel. Um, They're so much more than just the angelic version of good morning, it's nice to see you. Did you notice the two words that Gabriel repeats twice here? He calls her favored one and he says, you have found favor with God. Now that word favor, that's the Greek word that's translated throughout the New Testament as the word grace. It means the unmerited, unearned, undeserved affection and love and delight of God. His favor, his grace is his steadfast, merciful love poured out like an ocean on people that don't deserve it at great cost to himself and at no cost to those that receive it. And Gabriel says, that's why I'm here. The favor The grace of God. That's the reason I've been sent. That's the heart of my message. That's what I want you to hear first of all before I hear anything else. That I am here because of the favor, the grace of God. Everything I have to say is shot through with the grace of God. That's what Gabriel says. Gabriel has a lot to say to Mary, but he wants her to know before he gets to any of it that it's all about the grace and the favor of God. In other words, if it weren't for the favor and the grace of God, there would be no messenger and there would be no message. If it weren't for God's grace, Mary's life wouldn't have been interrupted and her life would go on like normal and this broken, weary world would remain in hopeless darkness. But Gabriel says to Mary, you have been favored by a favoring God. And because of that, I've got something incredible to say to you. And you better sit down first, but before I say it, you just need to know that it's all about the favor and grace of God. And that's how we're going to approach this passage this morning. Since it's all about the favor and the grace of God, I want you to see five things that this passage shows us about the favor and grace of God. That's right, five. This might be the last five-point sermon I ever try to preach, but... The first service did okay with it. Let's see how this goes this time. Five things about the favor and the grace of God that we see here in this passage. And the first thing I want you to see is this, is that grace makes the first move. Grace makes the first move. Let me explain what I mean by that. When Gabriel bursts on the scene here of Mary's life and calls her favored one, what he's not saying is that God has recognized something special and good about Mary that he's responding to. It's not like, like God has been waiting in heaven for the last 400 silent years for somebody like Mary to finally come along. When Gabriel calls her favored one, he's not saying that she is uniquely or inherently favorable because of what she brings to the table. No, he's saying that she has been favored by God. He's not saying that she is by nature full of grace, but that she has become the object, the recipient of grace. In other words, the reason that Gabriel is here with the message that he has is because there's something good about God, not necessarily something good about Mary. God is the active giver and source of grace. Mary is the passive recipient and receiver of this grace. Now look, Mary's about to be blessed beyond imagination, okay? She's, think about it, the one person in all of human history 
that will have the privilege of being the mother of the Son of God. It's an unthinkable privilege. But God did not survey the available options available and alive at the time and arrive on Mary because she deserved this privilege more than anybody else. No, notice it says that she found favor with God, meaning that the favor of God found her. Like it went out and looked for her. It had to go find her. It sought her out. It pursued her. It chased her down. It grabbed hold of her. Grace, the unearned, unmerited, pure delight and smile of God, always makes the first move. God always initiates with his saving favor and grace. If he waited for you and me to make the first move, to be good enough in some kind of way to deserve his grace and favor, he would still be waiting. Isaiah 9 is a familiar Advent passage. It was our sermon text from last week. You remember how this goes. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Let me ask you, there in that scenario, who makes the first move? It's not the people in the darkness, notice, us. We seem to be pretty content there. It's the light that shines, that comes, that seeks out and pursues and rescues. The light makes the first move. And in Ephesians 2, when Paul writes that we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. And he says this, by grace, by favor, you have been saved. Who makes the first move there? Dead people don't make the first move. Dead people can't make the first move. Grace makes the first move. It's the way it is here with Mary. And brothers and sisters and friends, it's the way it's always been. And it's the way that it is right now. If you know the saving grace and favor and delight of God, it's because God found you with his favor. Not the other way around. About nine months after this passage here in Luke chapter 2, we're going to read of an army of angels. We don't know if Gabriel is leading them or not, but it's, it's an army of angels that shows up and interrupts the night of the shepherds as they watch the sheep and scare the daylights out of them. And do you remember what they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or as another translation has it, peace with those on whom his favor rests. The good news of the gospel is that God has come to find us with his favor and his grace. And the God who made the first move towards you in grace continues to pursue you all your life long with his grace. But grace makes the first move. That's the first thing that we see here. The second thing we see is that grace can turn our life upside down. The favor and grace of God poured out on us when he makes the first move can really change things. The announcement of God's favor and grace towards Mary, that he was going to give her the privilege to be the human mother of the Son of God, notice it didn't make her life any easier. It did not make her more comfortable or more popular. God did not say to her, if you believe and obey, I'm going to give you all the answers that you'll want and your life will be good. And everyone on Facebook and Instagram will know that your life is hashtag blessed. 
No, notice that God says, in effect, if you believe and obey me, your life will get infinitely more complicated. And you will endure hardship and suffering and loss and change that you wouldn't have otherwise because of my grace and favor. I mean, think about it. She would be ostracized as a pregnant teenage mother who wasn't fully legally married yet. You can just hear her friends and her neighbors saying, God got you pregnant? Really? Mary, come on. We know what happened. She would give birth to her first baby boy under a cloud of suspicion. Have you ever thought about the fact that when Mary and Joseph return to Bethlehem, it's Joseph's own town, but there's no room for them anywhere, not even in the inn, not even with Joseph's family. And we're not told this, but I've often wondered, is it because Joseph's own family wants to keep a good distance from their scandalous relatives that have come back to town? And then she would live as a refugee in exile for years in Egypt as they wait for King Herod to die. And then 33 years later, she would endure what no parent should ever have to experience. She would, for three dark days, think that she had outlived her child, having watched him die a brutal death right in front of her eyes. All of this because of the grace and favor of God to her. Grace can turn our life upside down. Every scholar agrees that Mary was a teenager. She was a Jewish peasant teenager, betrothed to be married to Joseph. Her whole life is in front of her. She had to have her own dreams and plans and hopes for, for what her life and her world would look like. But the grace and the favor of God interrupts her plans and turns her life upside down. You know, there's a question that we often ask when our life turns upside down, when we experience loss or suffering or pain or change. It's a question that we've asked for a long time. It's a question we see the psalmist asking very often. And it's a question that I wonder if Mary ever asked it as she was running away towards Egypt, perhaps with her baby in her arms as a poor refugee in Egypt? Did she ever ask, God, where are you in all of this? God, where are you? You know, Mary would have been able to look down in her arms, and maybe before she had even finished articulating the question, she would have seen the answer to her question, that he's right here with me. He's closer than I can possibly imagine. I'm holding him. He's not distant. He's not absent. He is right here with me in this world that has been turned upside down. My life has turned upside down and he is right here with me. You know, maybe you need that comfort or encouragement this morning. Maybe you know what it's like to have your world turned upside down or interrupted Maybe you know what it's like to think, God, I thought that your grace and favor to me would look different than this. I thought it would make my life more enjoyable or, or ease the suffering or that you would resolve this conflict by now. Maybe your heart is breaking right now because it is hard to believe that God is being good to you while he's also taking away something that you believe is really good. 
What we learn here from the way that grace turns Mary's life upside down is that trial and suffering for the believer is never evidence of the absence of God. He was right there with her, literally in her arms. And he is right there with you in it, not as a baby, but as a risen king, but as someone who has entered down into the darkness of your life that has turned upside down. He knows, he can sympathize, and he's also good enough and powerful enough to know how he can make it work together for your good and for his glory. Grace makes the first move. Grace can turn our lives upside down. Thirdly, grace can't be stopped. Grace can't be stopped. Nothing can get in the way of God's determined purposes to bless his people and pour out his favor and grace like an ocean on them. There is no force in the universe that can withstand the power of God's intent to be good to you. Nothing in the universe. Or as Gabriel would say it, nothing will be impossible with God. He says that, he says that line as a response to Mary's question in verse 34. Mary's response after Gabriel says that she's going to have a baby who will be her son who will also be David's son, who will also be God's son. More on that in a minute. Her response to that is just simply, how? How's that going to work? Notice she doesn't say, that can't happen. And notice she doesn't say, I don't believe and I'm not going to do it. She just simply says, how can this be? In other words, Gabriel, I know I'm just a teenager, but I'm old enough to know how babies are made. I know the equation here. I know it takes two to tango. And Joseph and I, we're not married yet, and so we're not tangoing. And so what you're saying is, by definition, impossible. How can this happen? I think her response to Gabriel is a version of, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that God can do it. I'm not saying no. I just don't understand how even God himself can overcome the obstacle of my virginity. It's as if, it's as if they were playing, playing, with, with playing poker, playing cards. Mary thinks she's got a much better hand than God, a hand that even God can't beat. She thinks that she's been dealt a hand that's a straight flush, let's say a 9, 10, jack, queen, and king of spades. That's a really good hand, okay? Um, not much can beat that. And she understandably thinks, that's the hand I've been dealt, and even God cannot beat that. This is something even God can't work with. God's going to have to fold or pick somebody else. But here's the thing. God always has the royal flesh. Like, God always has a better hand than you all the time. He's always got a better hand, and Gabriel responds, look, nothing is impossible with God. You think it's impossible by definition? God's the one that wrote the definition. What you're identifying as an obstacle standing in the way of God, your virginity, is actually going to be the very thing that God uses to accomplish his plan. What you think is preventing God from accomplishing his gracious purposes, God's actually going to use that very thing to accomplish his gracious purposes. The thing that you think is going to make God stop 
is actually going to be the very place where he's going to be at work. In verse 35, Gabriel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Mary's probably thinking at this point, all right, that doesn't answer any of my questions. Um, that just raises more questions, but okay. What is Gabriel doing in this, there in verse 35? Notice that what he's doing is he's going all the way back to the very first few sentences of the Bible to describe how the Son of God is going to descend from heaven to earth to become the son of Mary. Here's what he's doing. Here at the beginning of the New Testament, he's, all, he's going all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, to Genesis 1, when God creates all things out of nothing. And there in the darkness, before creation, what do we find there? Well, we find the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Gabriel uses that exact same kind of language and, and imagery that the Holy Spirit will overshadow, will hover over the emptiness and the darkness and the impossibility of Mary's womb and create something from nothing. Because the human race cannot produce its own Savior, as I heard someone say this week, God will bring him in in the very place where everyone would have thought it's impossible. It's amazing how Gabriel is talking about this, though. Think about it. In Genesis, the Creator creates something out of nothing by the word of His power as the Spirit is hovering over the, the face of the waters. But here, here God Himself is the one that's going to plunge down into the darkness that the Spirit is hovering over. And there in Genesis 1, God created by the word of His power. Here, it's the word of God's power Himself that's going to come all the way down and become flesh and enter into the world because grace can't be stopped. Because nothing can get in the way of God's determined purposes to bless his people and pour out like an ocean his grace and favor on them. There is no force in the universe that can stand in God's way and withstand God's intent to be good to his people. God always has a better hand than you all the time. What are those hands that you might be holding, though, this morning, and you think, I don't think God can work with this? Either you look outside in the world around you, or you look within you, and you think, this hand that I've been dealt, I think it's got, it's got God beat this time. He's going to have to fold. He can't work with this. But God always has a better hand than you. We may think that God can't possibly work in our emptiness or with our failures or with the impossibility of our circumstances or our limitations, but nothing is impossible with a God whose grace can't be stopped. So grace makes the first move. Grace can't or, or grace can turn our lives upside down. Grace can't be stopped. Fourthly, grace demands our surrender. In light of everything that Gabriel announces to her, what does Mary say? How does she respond? In verse 38, she just simply says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. One author says, this is the real miracle that's happening here. God becoming a man, that's easy for God. God becoming a man through a virgin, that's easy for God. 
Mary believing all of this, that's the real miracle. She simply trusts and obeys. She accepts God's calling on her life and willingly submits to the path that God is calling her to walk. And just put yourself in Mary's sandals at this point. There are still so many unanswered questions, aren't there? So many things that you want to know. I mean, if Mary was anything like me, she would be saying, all right, Gabriel, I want you to sit down and spell out exactly what this is going to look like. Um, This sounds dangerous. It sounds risky. It sounds costly. I need you to explain to me how this is going to work, how God is going to provide for this need and that concern of mine and this thing I'm worried about and how he's going to make up for this that's going to change in my world. But she, she just doesn't go there. She simply says, okay, I'm in. Grace demands our surrender. The God who pours out his favor and grace on us can be trusted enough to surrender to completely, even when we don't know exactly what he's doing or, or why he's doing it the way that he is. Mary believes that God is good enough to fall completely headlong into, in complete surrender. What about you this morning? What about you and me? Can we say with Mary, is the posture of our hearts this morning right now, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Can we say with Mary in light of what God may have introduced into our lives, in light of the ways that he might be calling us to step into the unknown, in in light of ways that he might be introducing suffering or pain or change or loss into your life and asking you to trust him and to have faith in the midst of uncertainty and painful circumstances, can we say with Mary, I'm in. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm the servant of the Lord. His grace demands our surrender. And because of his grace, when we surrender, we actually gain infinitely more than what we thought we were giving up. You can surrender to a God who has surrendered himself for your good. You can trust a God like that. Grace demands our surrender. So we've seen, first of all, that grace makes the first move. Grace can turn our lives upside down. Grace can't be stopped. And grace demands our surrender. Fifthly, lastly, grace is found in a person. Grace is located. It's centered in. It is all found in a person. The smile of God His sheer delight and unearned favor, the heart of God towards his people, his steadfast, immovable covenant love, it's all found in a person that's coming, Gabriel says, and he's going to be your son. But notice he's not just going to be Mary's son. This individual, this person that's coming has a family tree unlike anybody in the history of the world. Notice that he's the son of Mary, who's the son of God, who's the son of David. He's the son of Mary, meaning that he's just like Mary. He's her son. 
He's from her. He's of her. He's a real human being with 23 chromosomes from her. And as the son of Mary, listen to what this means. It means that he's not just sort of, kind of human, but that he is fully, completely, through and through, all the way, human being, and yet without sin, which means that he knows exactly what it's like to be just like you, because he became just like you, and yet without sin. How is that possible? Well, it's because he's not just the son of Mary. He is like us, but notice he is not only just like us. Verse 32, Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. In verse 35, the child to be born will be, will be called holy, the son of God. He's not only Mary's son, but he is God's son, meaning he's just like God. But not just sort of, kind of like God, but fully, completely, through and through, all the way, God. The writer of Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Paul in Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He knows what it's like to be just like God because he has always been God. Have you ever wondered what God is like? You can't see him, he's invisible. Have you ever asked that question? What is God really like? You can look at Jesus and see exactly what God is like because he's God. But notice he's not just the son of Mary, he's just like Mary. He's not just the son of God who is God. But he's also someone else's son. He's the son of David, Gabriel says. Meaning he's a king. He's a ruler. He's the long-awaited monarch. Verse 32, Gabriel says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Y'all, in that sentence right there, in one breath, all of the hopes and promises of the whole Old Testament come together and find their fulfillment and resolution. Right there in that one sentence, like we sing in O Little Town of Bethlehem, right here, all the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. He's the son of Mary, who's the son of David, who's the son of God, who's arrived in this world to reign, to bring about his kingdom, to push back against the gates of darkness and hell, to invade our world and our hearts with his grace and favor and to establish a just and good and eternal reign. Can you imagine that? It won't end. Your first day there, you'll think, I wish this could go on forever, and it will. And, last, and, and every last drop of God's goodness and his grace and his favor is found in him. Because he is the full expression of the favor and grace of God. John writes in John 1 that the word became flesh 
And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If someone ever calls you, if someone ever says that you're full of it, they're usually not giving you a compliment, right? But whatever they're saying that you're full of, there has to be a limit to it because it has to be a limited quantity because you're limited, right? Like eventually it, you're going to bump into walls. Eventually you're going to bump into your boundaries because you're limited. But for Jesus to be full of grace means that there is an unlimited supply of his favor and his smile because you never run into the walls. You never run into the boundaries. Never run into a limitation. For Jesus to be full of grace means that he has enough to sustain you through everything that you could possibly experience. Jesus is the one who is the full expression of the grace and favor of God. It's found in a person. It's not just an idea out there. It's not just some kind of esoteric theory. It's found in a person. He's the son of Mary, meaning that he was just like her, meaning he's just like you and me. He knows you, he's been there, and he's with you. But he's also the son of God, meaning that he, he's just like God because he is God. And he's the son of David, meaning that he's the king. Not just kind of the king, not just sort of the king, but the king. Just like he's not sort of God or sort of man, but all the way fully the king. And he's full of grace and truth. This one who is full of grace and truth plunged into the darkness of this world to surrender himself for your sakes on the cross. The king who was righteous and holy and good was spurned at and made fun of and endured the ridicule and shame of the cross, surrendering himself for you and me. And a king like that, brothers and sisters, you can surrender to, you can trust, you can give your life to, because he's good. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that this would be true of us this morning. We pray that in new and fresh ways, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning, that the eyes of our hearts would see you and respond in repentance and faith. Thank you that you, that you are full of grace because that means that it will never run out. It means that you've never treated us with anything other than pure favor because you're not afraid of your grace and favor running out. We may be because we know just a little bit of our hearts and we think that we can exhaust your favor. But, oh, Lord Jesus, may the eyes of our hearts rest on you this morning in such a way that we would be able to fall completely headlong into you in, in surrender knowing that you are the God and the King who rules over this world and our lives and that you are leading us home. In your name we pray, amen.